And also everyone I know died because they got too cold. Maybe, maybe I should try to stay dry. Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to Wayward Stories. Wayward Stories is the podcast where we tell your stories of adventure in the great outdoors or explorations or self-discovery or really whatever you want to talk about. We're here for it. It's what we are here to do. It is our uh, new mantra moving forward, share the experience. Um, I'm probably sharing the experience with you guys a little bit tonight. I don't know if you can hear this in the background. It is raining quite heavily here. Um, at first, I was like, man, how am I going to keep that noise out of tonight's recording? I was like, you know what? No, I'm good with it. I love the sound of rain. And it is pretty much on brand for us. That is very outdoors. That is very nature right there. Um, glad that you guys are back. I'm glad that you've stuck around for 10 episodes now. We are moving on and I think and I hope we are getting better with every episode as we go. We still need your stories though. I want to tell your stories and if you want to share them you need to get them emailed to me and the email at which you can do that is mywaywardstory at gmail.com or you can do it over at the website at waywardstories.com. Um, tonight we're going to talk about an adventure I took two years ago. One that um I remember quite fondly, um, and I think that you guys will enjoy it tonight. It is quite an interesting story, but like, how's y'all's week been? Let, let's get started there. How's your week been? Mine has kind of sucked, to be completely honest with you guys. Like, I'm like, I'm a transparent dude. You like ever have those times in life where life gets you down and kicks you in the junk, and then it just like keeps kicking you in the junk, and it's like, okay. There are forces beyond my control here that do not want me to get anywhere in this world. That's what this last um, few months has kind of been like. But this week in particular, today sucks pretty hard. Anyway, um, let's talk about fun stuff. Let's talk about tonight's adventure. Tonight, we are going to the Great Smoky Mountains. Um, two years ago, I mentioned in a previous episode that for the last three years, I have actually earned a vacation every year for the first time in my adult life. And this is the very first big trip I took with one of my summers. Um, and I went out to Chattanooga, Tennessee. I have a very good friend out there. I mean, heck, he ain't my friend. He's a brother. Um, I'll tell y'all what, man. Blood can and will betray you. But true friends that stick it out through it all, that's your real family right there. And this man is absolutely my brother. And I went out to see him and take an adventure, a hammock camping adventure through the Great Smoky Mountains and fishing as well. Um, but I headed out to Chattanooga first because that is where he lives. And we spent a day with his family there in Chattanooga. And we're going to touch on a couple of real quick points because Chattanooga impressed me a great deal. Chattanooga is a beautiful, beautiful little town. Something we did that evening, the trip was to begin the very next morning, so something we all did that evening, I and his family, is he took me downtown to, there's a pedestrian bridge, it's across um, an old railroad bridge that runs right across in downtown there, and y'all, downtown Chattanooga is happening. That place is sick. I love it. Absolutely love it. It is absolutely a 
beautiful, beautiful little city. Um, and they built, a, turned it into a pedestrian bridge, a walking bridge across the river there. And there's people up there. It's sunset. There are people up there hiking and biking and walking and just hanging out on the bridge, looking out over the Tennessee River at the sunset. And we had a very beautiful sunset that night. Um, and I just, I really loved it there. But what I really want to talk about is right below the bridge is what is locally colloquially known as the water steps what it is actually known as as is ross's landing and what ross's landing is ross's landing was a boat landing on the tennessee river and it is the beginning point of the forced removal of the cherokee people from that region it is the beginning of the trail of tears for the cherokee people in that area i am of cherokee heritage and I live in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And this was like, this was kind of a little, uh, not a surprise, but it was an unknown to me. And it was quite an interesting little coincidence. Like I live in Fort Smith and here in Fort Smith, we are the end point of the Trail of Tears for many of the Native Americans who were forcibly removed, lied to, robbed, blind by the U.S. government and sent packing on their way forcibly, to which most of them didn't survive. Um, it's a very, very, very ugly chapter in American history that we need to bring to light, far more to light, you know? Everyone's got skeletons in the closet. Nobody's perfect. And our government is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But... I found it really interesting because I've always known I lived at the end point of the Cherokee Trail of Tears. I am of Cherokee and Choctaw heritage. I grew up in eastern Oklahoma and the Cherokee Nation is north of the Arkansas River in eastern Oklahoma and the Choctaw Nation is south of the Arkansas River in eastern Oklahoma. And I have lineage on both sides of that river. Um, so I've always known I lived at the end point for many of the people who were removed came up by ferry, came up by boat up the Arkansas River, disembarked at Bell Point on the Arkansas River, Fort Smith, Arkansas. And um, I suddenly find myself at the other end of that route, at the very beginning of that point for the Cherokee people specifically. And the reason I want to talk about it tonight is what Chattanooga, Tennessee has done with that area to commemorate the removal of the Cherokee people. Um, they worked with native artists, um, and they built a monument to commemorate the Trail of Tears, the beginning of the Trail of Tears for the Cherokee people at Ross's Landing, the historical place of Ross's Landing. And what it is, it's a beautiful little water feature. It is a waterfall, long, broad steps that work their way down from the top all the way down to the water level. It's kind of like a giant waterfall, but all the little kids can go and play in it. It's just a couple of inches deep. It's like a giant splash pad that steps down all the way to the river. But alongside the walls of it are Cherokee iconography, symbolism, and the Cherokee language written on the walls and also the history of the removal um, from the Cherokee perspective. It is a really beautiful and absolutely beautiful homage and remembrance of a very dark period in history. And I am all for any city, any state, any government 
who's willing to turn face and engage head on the dark chapters of its history. Did the people of Chattanooga, and I don't know what year this was built, designed and built, so I'm not going to misquote that, but the people of the time it was built, it's recent, they did not forcibly remove any Native Americans, but the history of the city they represent, the state, the country they represent did, and to turn and engage it and face it head on, and in, in my opinion, at least, and I am not a full-fledged member of the Cherokee Nation, it is just a part of my lineage, so I want to be completely clear about that, but by my estimation and what I saw there, it's an absolutely beautiful memorial, and I think by all means is a fitting memorial and a fitting honor to that dark piece of our history. And like, I just want to point all that out because I want to give Chattanooga big, big, big ups for doing that and doing it in such a beautiful way. And in a way that benefits the local um, community as it stands, not only is the history commemorated, but it's just an awesome place. And the kids all love to go there and splash around and guess what they're being exposed to while they're doing that. Cherokee iconography, Cherokee language, things that they can see and go back to their teacher at school and say, Miss or Mr. What is this? What is going on at the water steps? What are all those symbols? It's a way to remember, a way to remind and a way to teach. And I absolutely freaking love it. Chattanooga, big ups for you. Like big props. Great job. I absolutely love it. And now I'm looking at you, Fort Smith, Arkansas, my home city. I may just have to get a little bit civically active about this. Fort Smith doesn't like shy away from being the end point of the Trail of Tears. It is in the history. It is memorialized down towards Bell Point at the Fort Smith National Historic Site, the famous courthouse where the hanging judge, Isaac Parker, um, held court. But there's really nothing down at river level. And what an awesome opportunity. What an awesome opportunity stands there for them to do something that could benefit, just like in Chattanooga, the local citizenry, and also properly commemorate Fort Smith's role in the dark history of the Trail of Tears. Um, I just think it would be really, really cool. There are mooring points, there are islets, giant wrought iron islets that are still jammed into, driven into the rocks down at Bell Point. I don't know because I haven't been able to do that historical research yet. I haven't been able to find out if those are in any way, shape, or form originals to the very, very early days of Fort Smith and if they could in fact be original mooring points for boats that carried forced removal native tribes. But there's a lot of stuff down there to work with. And I'm just saying, Fort Smith, Arkansas, I'm looking at you. I think we got a responsibility to do this. Hit me up. I'll do whatever I can to help. I think it would be amazing. But I just wanted to point that out. Chattanooga, great job. I wanted to give all of you out there, my listeners, a little bit of a quick history lesson and something you should go check out in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, yeah, we're going to move on from there. I will say this. This is really cool. There is a place just up from that bridge and from the water steps. It's called the Ice Cream Show. And we had ice cream that night with his family there. That place, super cool, super awesome ice cream. But I just want to say their menu is in multiple languages on the wall. 
And one of those languages is Cherokee. And I think that is the coolest thing ever. That is a great way to pay homage to the history of the area in which you were doing business. Now, moving on. I hope that I didn't lose any of you guys because that is not necessarily outdoors related, but important to me. And you got to hear about it because of that. Moving on, the next morning, my best friend, Jason and I, he's my boy, man. Like, he is a good dude. If y'all ever figure out who he is, you just need to understand. He's one of the greatest men I've ever known. Well, really the greatest man I've ever known. He's a good man. Um, we set out on an adventure to go on an overnight backpacking, hammock camping fishing trip into the Great Smoky Mountains. Now, as it always goes, you got to go with the flow and the plans changed a little bit. But this is what we set out for. And we drove up 75 all the way to the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. Before you get into the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, you are going to have to go through the touristy part of what people say when they say I went to the Smokies. Typically speaking, people are going and taking their families and they're going to Pigeon Forge or Dollywood there in Pigeon Forge are going to Gatlinburg, Gatlinburg. Both of those are very much, very much family touristy types of destinations in the Smoky Mountains. They are not in Great Smoky Mountain National Park, but they are just shy of it. You have to cross through these to get to that. These were not where we were going. Very cool places, very pretty, lots and lots and lots and lots of traffic. It is every bit the, I mean, it's Six Flags, it's Silver Dollar City in Branson, it's Disney World for the South Central, like it is absolutely a tourist destination, but that's not we were there, not what we were there for. But they have all kinds of cool stuff you can do there, that's for sure. They got all the zipline tours and all those things, but not, again, what we went for. So... After sitting in traffic for quite some time, we made our way into the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, and we entered at the Sugarlands Visitor Center. That is one of two visitor centers that will welcome you into the park. We went in through that visitor center. What you need to know about Great Smoky Mountains National Park is the highest mountains in the eastern U.S. It is the largest protected area in the eastern U.S. It is, actually, that might be in, in the U.S. as a whole not positive on that. Now, get this. You remember we were talking about Big Sur, Yosemite. We were talking about 5, 6 million visitors a year. Y'all, y'all. 12.5 million people a year visit the Smokies. Now, to be fair, a lot of them might be doing the very touristy, touristy kind of stuff at Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg. I'm not sure if those numbers are all combined as a local type of thing or if this is specifically for the national park. But the number I have here is 12.5 million people, and that is redonkulous. On top of that, this contributes $2.5 billion a year to the local economy there in Tennessee and also North Carolina. Um, it is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, which I need to look further into. Usually to get UNESCO World Heritage Site status, we're talking about there are things of cultural significance in that area that go back thousands if not tens of thousands of years that tell a story of our um well our history the human race's history in the area so i need to look further into that it's also been designated an international biosphere reserve it is a very very neat place 
very beautiful place. I was looking into, I thought, you know, I have to ask the question, why are the Smoky Mountains smoky? Like, we have to answer that question. And there is a good scientific answer for it. And essentially, I'm going to do it in layman's terms because I are a layman. But in layman's terms, it is a particular kind of gas that is given off. We know, we all know plants, you know, they eat carbon dioxide and they spit out oxygen. Um, But there are other things that are given off. And the example of that would be like the smell of a pine tree when you're next to a pine tree or the smell of a cedar tree when you've got a live one in your living room for Christmas or whatever. This is a, this is an example of that. There are other gases that are also released along with carbon dioxide and the great smoky mountains just so happens to be at like in the perfect situation, the perfect elevation, the perfect climate, the perfect, perfect temperature range, the perfect humidity, everything is just perfect. And with all the millions, I mean, probably billions of plants and trees that result or that live within the mountains, the result of the giving off of those gases creates fog, which in turn makes the mountains look smoky. And there's also a reason that they look blue. And it's because that particular kind of gas that they give off that condenses and becomes a fog scatters the blue portion of the spectrum of light that comes from obviously the sun. And hence they look blue. So you get the Blue Ridge Mountains, And you get the Great Smoky Mountains, and they're all right there together. And that is the less than technical (laughs) description of why the Smoky Mountains are smoky. But it is basically accurate. Um, let's see. When you get into the Great Smoky Mountains, what you've got, and this is what we were there for. You've got 2,900 miles of streams, and it is one of the last wild trout habitats in the eastern U.S., and this is what we were after. It is also a natural smallmouth bass habitat, which is also what we were after. Um, Rainbow and brown trout were introduced. Brook trout are what is wild and native to the region. Um, interestingly enough, the brook trout are having to compete now with the rainbow and the brown that were introduced by us humans. We're so good at in- introducing, na- you know, invasive species and non-native species to areas, aren't we? Aren't we? Like, we are so special. We humans are so special. We are really good at that. Um, but when you get into the park, here's what we did. We went in through the Sugarlands Visitor Center, and here's like an issue that we ran into. We were planning to do a hike, a backcountry hike, an overnight hike up into the park along a fishing river or creek and throw up our hammock, stay the night, and fish like mofos for as long as we could until it was time to go home. The problem we faced is, is it was thunderstorming severely all day in pockets, in squall lines, like you would see cells that looked like supercells, and then suddenly a giant line would come through. And it was just a really, really, really stormy, really, really wet day. And I being the mother hen that I am, and also being the search and rescue guy that I am, like, I was like, man, I, honest to God, I'm not comfortable with this. If we hike three miles, four miles back in, and we are hanging on trees and hammocks, and a giant thunderstorm comes through, with a lot of lightning strikes, like we are seriously, seriously, seriously putting ourselves in danger. Um, And now that I'm old and now that I have a child and I see like, because I travel for work, I see how much my child needs me. When I'm gone for work, 
There is no getting around. I cannot hide from myself nor anyone else in the world how much our children need us in their lives. And that is very real thought to me now. On things that I may have done in the past and said, let's throw caution to the wind and let's go see what happens, everybody. If we survive, we'll have a great story at the end of it. Now I make better decisions that than that. If I think I might literally put my life in danger, there's a good chance I'm probably going to nope out on it because if for no other reason, for her sake. So we actually spent some time hemming and hawing, looking at weather reports and trying to decide what to do from that visitor center and even visiting with the rangers there in the center to make that decision and ultimately decided that was not the best course of action for us. So what we chose to do was drive our way down, let's see, the Little River Gorge Road, maybe Little River Gorge Highway. Let me see. I've written some of these things down so I can get this right for you guys and you can Google the proper information. Um... Yeah, Little Little River Gorge Road. Um, and decided to follow it because it follows Little River through the Smokies. And what do you have in the Little River? You have beautiful white water, clear, cold running water in which to wade, and brook and smallmouth and rainbow and brown trout to chase after while you were wading in that crystal clear water. Um and so we set out down Little River Gorge Road. There are multiple, multiple, multiple turnouts where you can park, work your way down to the river and fish the river. And that's what we did for the entire day that day. And it was a wonderful day. We had certain moments where we would get broken sunshine and then we would get full on sunshine before the next line of storms came through and the sun was hot. The water was ice cold. The Smoky Mountains were being smoky. They were, I mean, with all the rain, the humidity, like they had their signature look going on and I am standing knee deep in a crystal clear ice cold creek catching smallmouth and brook trout. And see that we're back to something I touch on in nearly every episode now, I guess it's because it actually is what really matters to me living out the experience of doing something awesome, not just reading about it not just listening to it in a podcast, though I am glad you were listening to it tonight. Hopefully you're just here to get ideas, um, to watching a video about it, to it. It's superior to all those things. Being there, feeling it on your skin, smelling it, seeing it with your own eyes, in context, in situ. There's nothing quite like it. I in that day, I just remember once I looked, I looked around and I was like, man, I'm here with my best friend. I am knee deep in a beautiful river. I see the smoke in the Smoky Mountains for myself. It was a glorious, glorious moment and it was a glorious day and I absolutely loved every second of it. Here's the great thing. Any of you guys that are fit, guys or gals, now listen, let's get this square right now. When I say guys, that is not intended in any way, shape, or form to be exclusive to men only. I call everyone guys. When I walk up to the huddle at work and all of our drivers, both female, male, nondescript, I say, hey guys, what's up? It literally, for me, means everyone. I'm going to work on being more proper in how I word that, but I just want you to understand right now that when I say it, it does not mean just dudes by any means, not what's intended trying to be because it's what's important to me, everyone. It's all about 
all of this is for anyone and everyone. That's what I want. So just, I'll try to be better about what I say and remind myself, but you guys try to give me a little leeway and also understand what my intention is when I say things like that. But anyway, all of you folks out there who love to fish, um, you're going to love this trip and you need to take it. Now you can do it fly fishing. Now it's been a long time guys since I fly fished. I fly fished in high school on a really cheap rod and reel that I probably got out of a Sears catalog mail-in thing, or maybe even at Walmart. Walmart used to sell some fly rods. Um, and we used to fish the, the Black Fork River in uh, southeastern Oklahoma, south of the town I grew up in for smallmouth. And it was a blast, but it's tough. Fly fishing is not the easiest thing for multiple reasons. Like, even if you get a really cheap outfit, it's a fairly expensive version of fishing. Two, the rod is huge. Three, you have to have so much room to do it. Especially if you're not a pro. You've got to have a lot of room to work that line as you whip it out there. It's something I want to do again and I intend to because one of the things on my bucket list, one of the things I sincerely desperately want to do is I want to fly fish in Montana. I don't know why, just because I do and I intend to someday. But it's also at this point in my life, another expensive hobby that I cannot by any means afford to get into at the moment. I've got too many real life things that take all of my money and leave me in debt every month. Um... But fly fishing is something that is really, really big in the Smokies. Um, again, we're talking about brook trout native to the area, which is really awesome. Smallmouth that are native. And then, of course, rainbow and brown that were introduced. Here's the great thing about all those fish. Whether you were fishing fly or like myself and my friend Jason that, that week um, with a ultralight rig. My ultralight rig, super small, like... I run four and a half to six pound test line. I don't remember. I'd have to look and see what I put on there last time. Um, it's like a four and a half to six and a half pound pole like that breaks down. It's like a grand total of four, I think four, six, four feet, six inches long. Um, super flexible, super small reel, super lightweight. The, the lures are super small. They're super inexpensive. And basically you can catch anything with either of those. And when you're talking about smallmouth, brook trout, rainbow trout, and brown trout, you can catch them all on basically the same lure. It works out great. Trout love inline spinners like Meps, Blue Fox, Rooster Tails. They absolutely love inline spinners. If you're fishing with a conventional like rod and reel. Now I'm running a spinning outfit, an ultralight spinning outfit, but with any kind of a conventional rod and reel, they love inline spinners. Now, if you're floating or if you're fishing with fly, then yeah, you're going to have to talk about different things, dry flies versus what have you. Um, but this, the great thing about these fish, especially in the Smokies, is they're all going to bite the same lures. And all you have to do as a fisherman is learn how to fish and what fish like. I've been very successful over the years fishing personally because like I'm that nerd that's kind of way too cerebral about everything I want to learn about it because like if I'm going to do it and I'm interested in it I actually want to know about it and try to do it well right like that's just who I am so you get on and you learn there's a science to how fish live their lives believe it or not like we're humans you know at one point we were like 
<laughs> very low in the evolutionary process. And we were like, hey, man, Og needs like Og needs a cave or something because it's raining out here and I'm sick of being wet and cold. And also everyone I know died because they got too cold. Maybe, maybe I should try to stay dry. Like there's a reason. All of we species that inhabit this planet, and I don't say any of that, that's all meant to be funny for anyone out there that believes in creation. It's all meant to be funny. Um, but we humans have a specific way we need to live and how we procure food. We moved from hunter-gatherers to um, farmers into conventional agriculture. And, you know, now we're all just consumers who buy stuff at McDonald's and assume that it, like, comes from the ethers and that it doesn't actually have any impact on the environment. But we have specific environment we need to live in in order to survive and thrive in a way that we need to eat. Well, it's the same for every animal on this planet. And fish, in particular, especially trout, smallmouth, they are fast-moving water, like mountain stream types of game fish. They like fast-moving water, broken water, because it helps hide them from predators, i.e. us, but it also helps us to approach them without them seeing us. Um, and they like to hang out in the confluence of two currents behind a rock that breaks the downstream current because the, the bait fish will be swept into them and they don't have to paddle too hard. They don't have to swim too hard against the current. And also they can hang out on the cushion that exists on the front of a rock where the current hits it. Um, it's kind of like if you guys kayak, you know how you can surf at the front end of a rock? that water flow will actually pull you into the rock. The fish will actually hang out there. Usually there'll be one or two on the front, but they like to hang out around riffrap or riprap like that, where the water's broken up, the bait fish are being brought to them, and all you have to do is work on your presentation. And that to me is one of the fun things about fishing. It is for me, it's absolutely about the sport. I'm not, I don't eat fish. I mean, I will, don't get me wrong, I will. But I don't go out and catch fish to eat them because I don't need to. I can eat lots of things. If I were in need, then I would do that. And I have before in my life. But like I'm strictly now at this point in my life because I have no need to take something's life to feed myself in that manner. Strictly catch and release for me. Um, I even take other precautions like I lose a lot of fish because of this. But like with smallmouth specifically smallmouth fishing, I'll pinch the barbs down on my hooks. So when it's time to release them after you've caught them, it slides right out. It does far less damage. And if it's hooked through anything that would be uncomfortable remove, to remove a hook through, it is far smoother transition and does far less damage. And I lose a lot of fish like that. But again, I'm not there to catch a world record. I'm there to participate in the sport hunt them and beat them and then let them go to be hunted by someone else another day. Um, but yeah, this is a great place to do all of this kind of fishing up here in the mountains. Cause this Creek, this, this little river, y'all, 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 it's beautiful, beautiful. It is, oh, gosh, it's gorgeous. Google it, Google little river, great smoky mountains and look at some of the pictures. Um, is absolutely beautiful up there. I mean, what could be better than standing knee deep or waist deep or calf deep? I don't care. In an ice cold, crystal clear mountain river, undammed mountain river, fishing for brook trout that are native to the area 
in the Great Smoky Mountains, watching the quote-unquote smoke rise from the trees in the mountains all around you. It was a beautiful, beautiful day. Um, so we worked our way down Little River for several miles. There are tons of pullouts, and anywhere there was one that looked really good or visually stimulating, we kicked it, man. We pulled over, we fished for a while, and then we moved on down creek. Um, we had to wait out a few storms. They came and they went, and then we'd get back to the river. Um, one of the things I really want to talk about, well, there's two things I want to talk about here in this particular part of our trip. One is the sinks. The sinks is a place on Little River. Um, it is a named place. You can Google that also, and you will get a specific return with specific pictures. Um, what it is, historically speaking, it's a place where there was a log jam at some point in history, and the mining company in the area, I believe it was the mining company, they had a uh, they had a railroad through the Great Smoky Mountains. Y'all, if you, it blows my mind the places that we have put railroads in this country. They were good back then. Because, hey, baby, if there was money to be made, if there is virgin timber that we can rape, pillage, and absolutely destroy the ecology, heck, yeah, we'll find a way to get a railroad in there. But there was a railroad that went in. And anyway, a log jam came up in the river on this corner, on this bend. And that was unacceptable because we had to float the timber in and out, right? We had to float equipment in, we had to float timber out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they decided to blow up the log jam, right? Much like we talked about in the Cattle Lake episode last week. But what they did was actually alter the course of the river. They blew up something that shouldn't have been blown up and it completely altered the course of the river and created a man-made, quote unquote, by accident, waterfall. And that waterfall um, is beautiful, it is great whitewater, rafting, canoeing, kayaking, if you've got the chucks for it. And also very, very, very dangerous. The current there is very strong. There are lots of ledges and things underneath the water, and it claims lives fairly regularly. Lots of people die there. And too many of the stories I read were somebody trying to cross the top of the falls in ankle-deep water and lost their footing on the slime, you know, the algae that grows, the moss that grows on the bottom of the creek and getting swept over and literally pinned by the current. Y'all, we're talking about hydraulics here. We're talking about falling water from 12 feet above you and a lot of it. Water weighs a lot. I learned something last night, y'all. My neighbor told me, he was talking to my daughter after her soccer game and he said, do you know how much a cloud weighs? And I was like, you know what? Now, y'all, I'm a storm spotter for the national weather service there's a big difference between that and a chaser don't mistake that um very interested in storms i like to do a lot of research but it never crossed my mind what does a cloud weigh i assumed it was weightless it's water vapor right um we did not know so we came and googled it we looked it up 1.1 million pounds is the average cumulus cloud if you don't believe me Google that ish. I didn't believe it either. I had to like back out and see if I had like a fake website. 1.1 million pounds. Water's heavy. Never really considered it in the form of a cloud, but yes, I always knew water was heavy. So lots of people drown. Now consider yourself informed with a really, really odd piece of trivia to impress people at your next drunken late night party. Um, or just consider yourself a little bit more intelligent today and go to sleep with a pat on the back. 
but that's out of the way. This area, the sinks will kill the heck out of you super fast. If you go there, you can tromp all over it. You can hike down to it. My buddy and I fished it. We waded up into the creek above the waterfall at the sinks and it was awesome. It was an awesome place to fish. There was some good deep pools with some broken water with some great like giant rocks and boulders where the fish could lie and had some prime lies up under there. It was a great place to fish. It was a beautiful place to fish. It sounded awesome with the waterfall going over. But if you do that, understand you could put your life in danger. People go over that waterfall and they die because there are complex, complex, um, hydraulics and complex um i just went blank on the word but hydraulics is proper in and of itself and that's good enough there are complex hydraulics going on there a lot of water a lot of heavy water a lot of speed a lot of pressure it's very dangerous understand that if you take your kids up in the smokies you go out to dollywood and you're like i listen to old justin i listen to that wayward son dude let's go down and check out the sinks don't let your five-year-old wander out in the the ankle deep water above the waterfall like i've seen i saw people do while i was there don't be that because trust me your kid's life's not worth it i'm just saying it's serious but it's beautiful it's a great place to fish enjoyed it very much and you need to think about the sinks if you go out there you need to fish the sinks just be careful doing it um the very next thing really the most notable next thing we continued to work our way down little river and fish at the different multiple pullouts. It was really a long day and it was a wonderful day. Like stopped, ate sandwiches at one point, made some turkey sandwiches out the cooler and sat in the water and ate lunch. And you know, it's a great way to have lunch, by the way. Any of you guys out there, you know, take that into account. You get out there and you get your lunch put together. Why not just wade out into the creek and set down waist deep? You'll work it out. Yeah, it's a little complicated, and both your hands are going to be occupied, but you'll work it out, and it's a really, really nice way to have lunch. Just telling you. Um, but we we continued to work our way down, but the next part I want to talk about is called um, the why. You come to a place where the road converges with another road, and it also happens to be the place where Little River converges with the middle prong of the Little River. Two creeks or two rivers come together. They are small. Like by my standards in the middle of the United States, they would be what I would call a large creek, not river status. But again, that is subjective to the viewer. To me, they're not a river, but they are rivers. They're called rivers, but they're they're somewhat more creek-like. Um, but at this point, the two come together. So the volume of the Little River does increase significantly because you have two come together. But there is a pullout a large parking area, and it's a great swimming hole for a lot of people. So we stopped there to check it out. We stopped there to fish. Um, this is going to, do you remember when I talked about rainstorms and thunderstorms early in the day and decisions we made based on those rainstorms and thunderstorms? That's going to come into play right here in a very real way. This is a object lesson. This is a uh, something to be learned from. So we go down and we're fishing just below the confluence of the middle prong of the Little River and the Little River at the Y in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. It is very cloudy at this point. We didn't have any sun then. We are in the river. I am standing approximately the center of my calf deep, just a, maybe a hair higher than the center of my calf, but just 
imagine on your own leg and you'll get the idea. And um, I'm fishing. And of course, some guy behind me, it starts talking to me. And he starts, it's really funny. He starts telling me, he's like, I don't know, you don't, you didn't get this from me. But if you don't let the game ranger see you, the way to catch them fish is Vienna sausages. Now, that's against the rules, but you cut them up and you put them in your pocket. And if you get caught, you just say, that's my lunch. But the fish love it. And so while he's giving me this local insider info on how to catch the fish in the area with basically beanie weenies um and that i shouldn't do that but if i do and when i do because i should do that don't get caught doing that and if you do get caught doing that just like go ahead and eat them so they know it's your lunch but anyway he's telling me this story and while he's telling me this story now i'd set my little i have a small little tackle box you know, just a clear, hard plastic one that's got a few lures. I mean, basically, I, out there, all I had was inline spinners, and then I had some twirl tail grubs, because I always have luck with those for the smallmouth. And I've got those sitting on the bank, my pliers, my t- tackle box, and then I believe there was something else. I don't remember what it was. But I had them sitting on the bank, maybe two feet away from the edge of the water. It's not two feet above the water, but it's two feet away from the edge of the water, back close to where his feet were, where he was standing. And I'm listening to him tell me this, and I'm talking to him about the area and just shooting the breeze like I am prone to do. And suddenly I realized, now do you guys know, you guys may not have ever really noticed, noticed, but there are some very sensitive areas on your body to cold and heat. Some of those areas are behind your ears, just under your earlobe the nape of your neck, and that one's important. Y'all, when you figure out that you can put a buff around your neck or a neck gaiter or a scarf to cover that nape of your neck, your core temperature in the dead of winter will change a million fold. Like, it changes everything. You can lose two layers on a 15 degree day just by covering up that part of your neck. But anyway, your wrist, the inside of your wrist, of course, and then also the back of your knees your armpits, your groin, all of those, coincidentally, if you ever have somebody going into heat exhaustion, especially if you know that they've gone into heat stroke, ice packs in the armpits and the groin, back of the neck, inside of the wrist to help cool the core down. Anyway, I digress. That was a tangent, but hey, maybe you've learned something that could save a life someday. Um, As I was talking to this man, I started out mid-calf water and suddenly I felt a stinging cold in the back of my knee and something doesn't feel right and I looked down and the water was now at my kneecaps and I thought you know much like a frog boiling in water right um you don't notice it's happening while it's happening because it's happening in increments it's happening slowly I realized like my brain was trying to put together wait a second I was standing in shallower water a minute ago, I think. And then, second piece of evidence I needed, my second witness that something was changing, was I looked down at my tackle box and it was floating. It was in about a quarter of an inch of water. The water was indeed coming up and I looked down and I put two and two together and I hollered at my friend Jason. I said, Jason, I think we've got a flash flood starting. The water's come up at least at least four inches, at least four to five inches in the last two or three minutes. And he's like, really? 
And he came over. And then at that moment, we both looked, or all three of us actually, along with that gentleman who was wanting to illegally catch fish with beanie weenies, we all looked back upstream where the river, it's already converged at this point when it comes around the bend, but there's a bend in the river. And coming around the bend was a large surge of water. And from, it was no longer crystal clear. It was mud brown. It was coming in basically standing wave format as it made the corner. And it was full of debris. It was full of branches and twigs and large logs. It was, now I'm not talking like tsunami guys, don't get me wrong. It wasn't a five foot tall wall of water, but it was, bam, there it is. We have a flash flood and it's happening right now. I looked back down the beach and there were countless families with little kids in the water playing. They obviously had not noticed what was happening, just like I wouldn't have noticed had I not been standing in the water in quite the same way that I was. And so I yelled at Jason. I said, take my gear, grab my gear so it don't float away, and I'm going down the beach. And I threw my fishing pole up onto the bank next to him, and I took off running down the sandbar. Because at this point, I was running, and I wasn't trying to be overdramatic, but at this point, I didn't know how fast that water was going to come up. I'm not native to that area. I know what flash floods can look like and how fast it can go bad, but I didn't know what to expect. And again, we've got children down the beach over 200 yards from me. I need to get there and get people up. They need to know this is happening. Um, And as I ran down, I started yelling because then the water really started to come up fast. And it was. The clear water was surging and the brown water was pooling around this bend and in the swimming hole. So anyone down from the swimming hole was, if they were seeing a surge, it was only still clear water. So there was nothing obviously wrong to them. So I ran down and started yelling and getting people's attention. And we cleared out the river as far as I could see people. And we all had to walk up through the woods because by the time I got their attention, the water had filled up the entire banks, the gravel bottom of the river, and we had to climb through the woods up to the highway, and then we hiked the highway back down, you know what, maybe a tenth of a mile, two-tenths of a mile, a quarter of a mile, back down to the parking area. And we all stood together in the parking area watching a brown torrent of raging white water full of logs and sticks and twigs and everything else in the world tearing through the area we were just standing and by the time that i had reached back reached the parking lot to watch this the entire area where i'd been standing with that man was under five or six feet of water absolutely was like i it would have been over my head that's how fast it happens guys that's how fast flash floods happen it's why you have to be careful when you camp on a river in the wilderness, and especially if you don't have cell phone service, this is especially why you have to camp on high ground and give room. And I'm going to tell a story that I actually don't, I've, I've, I've flipped and flopped about whether or not I should tell this story because I don't want to sensationalize a really, really bad event. Um, and I think the thing to do here, I think the card to play here is that if I ever do get sponsorships, I will never monetize this episode because somehow having a monetized episode about a, episode about a tragedy just seems morally unethical to me. So I think that's how I'm going to handle this. I need to tell this story because it is a um, it's a warning. It's one of those things you need to be aware of. Um, but I also don't want to benefit from it in any way. So if we ever monetize, we'll do one of two things. 
If we monetize this episode, the entire proceeds of the downloads of this episode will go to a charity somewhere, or we just won't monetize it at all. But regardless, the story is, I live in western Arkansas, or yeah, western Arkansas now, in a little more southwestern, south central western Arkansas, there's a place called the um, Albert Pike Campground, and a few years ago, handful of years ago, I believe, I'm not going to look it up, but there was upwards of 28 people died overnight camping on the Little Missouri River because the water level came up, I kid you not, over 24 feet in four hours in the middle of the night, and there was no warning. And those 28 of those 28 people, several were children. It was a horrible, horrible thing. I was not in search and rescue then, but I have come to know people who were on that rescue and on that recovery, and it messed with them, and they still have problems with it to this day. Some of them do. It was hard. It's hard on people in those situations, and especially hard on the families of the people who were lost. Um, use it as a warning. Understand that the water can, in some instances, come up. Five, I mean, in my case, it was six or seven feet in 10 minutes. In that case, it was 24 feet plus in just under four hours in the middle of the night. When you camp on rivers, never camp on the gravel bar ever. Because in both, like in my situation, yeah, there might have been cause to expect there could be rising water. It's been storming all day. In the case of the Albert Pike campground, there was no such situation going on. It stormed far upstream. Nobody knew it happened. There was no reason to think that it was happening. And at the end of the night, it was a horrible, horrible, horrible situation. I'm not going to go into any of the details that have ever been relayed to me because we're not sensationalizing something like that. But I want you to understand, camp smart, camp safely, stay off the water, at least above the level of the bed itself, if not more, at least that much. Um, but yeah, we watched a flash flood go down that night in the middle. It was getting close to evening time at that point in the middle of the great smoky mountains. And it was absolutely, it was, I mean, it's exciting to see. I won't say that it's not, you know, nobody was hurt in our situation. We got everyone out of the riverbed, but it's absolutely exciting to see. And it is an experience. It goes back to that experience thing, really experiencing nature, right? It's absolutely amazing to experience something like that. But just be mindful of it. Know that it could happen and plan accordingly. From there, after we got everything squared away, everyone was okay. We decided, well, we're not fishing here. I mean, the fishing's done now. Anyway, we're in flash flood situation. There is no fishing. So let's pack it up and let's find where we're going to camp tonight. I want to say this was a closer to like three o'clock in the afternoon because we were so far down Little River Gorge Road now, and it may have even turned into a different road when it can at the convergence there at the Y. But we had basically worked our way down the entire Little River in the Great Smoky Mountains from the Sugarlands, Visit Sugarlands Visitor Center. And we looked at the map and realized, hey, you know, we're just up from a town. Let's go. Let's go down and see if we can get a hot meal. You know, let's see what's down here and then we'll decide where we're going to camp and how we're going to camp and if we're going to even continue to camp because of the weather. And we went down into this little town called Townsend and um, I just wanted to throw this out there. We're not going to spend any time on this, but in this town of Townsend, there's a place called the Burgermaster Drive-In and we had burgers there that night. And y'all, let me just tell you, if you like a good 
old school greasy spoon burger grease burger cooked on an old iron griddle with some of the most awesome seasoned fries you've ever had y'all it is in a chocolate shake to beat the band with oh my god that was a good dinner that night i ate myself sick that night quite literally way more than i could it was awesome you guys just fyi um and from this point we had we sat there and we reworked our plan what's next because we didn't want to backcountry camp because of the threat of the thunderstorms and it was throughout the night um we needed to car camp we still wanted to camp we we're still going to put up our hammocks but we needed to be by our vehicles so we could get into an insulated environment if it got too hairy like just play it safe right so we realized that we could work our way back up this different road i can't find it here but if you just google the area you will get there and it is the Sitico creek wilderness area in the cherokee national forest and it's just south of great smoky mountain national park absolutely beautiful and Sitico creek is absolutely beautiful you're fishing for the same fishies in Sitico creek it's still smallmouth and there's still trout now, I don't know about Native Brook or whatever in Sitico Creek. If anyone knows a different pronunciation, don't beat me up too bad. I Googled it. It is a Native Cherokee word. It was the name of a settlement settlement that is now inundated underwater, under the waters of a lake that was called Sitico. And it had multiple spellings and multiple pronunciations throughout history and by different people from Sitico to Sitico to Satapo. So... Just work with me. Sitico Creek is how it's spelled. That's how I'm pronouncing it tonight. Their wilderness area, y'all, if you want to experience the Great Smoky Mountains, but you don't want to do it as your everyday flip-flop wearing with white mid-crew sock Bermuda shirt dad in Pigeon Forge or Dollywood, Sitico Creek might be for you. It is 20,000 acres of backcountry. It offers dispersed camping, meaning pick your spot. It offers hiking, backpacking. Oh my God, there's so many trails and horseback riding, equestrian trails. It is absolutely a backcountry adventure and it's still in the Smoky Mountains, just a little south of Great Smoky Mountain National Park, but you're still in the same mountains, you're still in the same area, and if you go far enough back up in there, you get yourself into North Carolina. Tennessee and North Carolina get together, riding there. It is really beautiful, so we drove up in, followed Sitico Creek up into the mountains, and we got in, I mean, it got dark on us. We ended up having to put up camp after dark. Storms were a-coming, we could hear them. And you could see them coming from the west and the lightning and you could hear the thunder rumbling in slowly. So we put up camp in the dark fast as we could, got our hammocks up, got our rain flies up and set about trying to build a fire because we were actually pretty wet and a little bit cold at this point. And we wanted to have a fire for a little while. And I told him, I said, you know, I think I can build a fire with all this wet wood. And he's like, Are you? he's like, really? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are ways to do this. Like, I love bushcraft, y'all. I ain't saying I'm great at it, but I love bushcraft. That's a part of search and rescue to me, and that's just a part of the way. That's a part of the dance we have with nature that I've talked about before. If you know the dance and you're willing to dance, you can dance. Bushcraft's a part of that. And I love a challenge. So I was like, I think I can start this fire. And so we set it up, and I, by all means, by God, 
got that fire started in really poor conditions. Now, we had a fire that night. And interestingly enough, that is so actually consequentially enough, that was the beginning. That was where my YouTube channel was actually born. I said, here, I want you to video this with my phone because I think I'm going to do this YouTube thing. It's been on my mind. I want to do this. And it is like the second video on my YouTube channel. I put up a couple of others that I had taken while I was out there. And that was, that trip, and especially that fire, was the birth of my YouTube channel. And they still exist back there. That actually, for me, was a big deal. The birth of my YouTube channel was a big deal for me because it was another step in the process of where I was trying to get. And I finally, you know, like I said, all the regrets of not doing California. Oh my God, y'all, I left probably 50 freaking videos, if not more, laying on the table in California because I wasn't ready yet. And I wasn't ready to get in front of a camera again yet. I didn't know how to approach it. But it was born right there on Sitico Creek in the Sitico Creek Wilderness in the Cherokee National Forest, damn near on the North Carolina line in the back country of the mountains of the Smokies in Tennessee. That's where my whole thing and to where we're at tonight, that's where it all started. You can still go find that on my YouTube. It's uh, starting a fire in less than ideal conditions. And that's exactly what we did that night. We got that fire started. We got to sleep. We survived the storms. Hammock camped on the side of Sitico Creek and had honestly one of the best trips that I've ever had. We had a great time adventuring our way through the mountains. We woke up the next morning, got our soaking wet camp torn down, shook out all the water as best we could, packed it up, and then fished our way down Sitico Creek back towards civilization. Like I said, Sitico Creek is the same exact techniques. It's the same fish. It's the same everything. Working your way back down is what you had up in the Smokies. So we fished our way back down Sitico Creek in the Sitico Creek wilderness um, and had just an absolutely great day that day as well. But there wasn't really anything of note that went on that day. We just had a wonderful day, knee deep in clear water, fishing, having a good time, good conversation, being with a good friend. And just honestly had a great adventurous trip. We got to camp out under the storms. I'd love to say stars, but it was storms. And we got to get out there and catch some fish and spend some good quality bro time together. And it was just a great trip. All around is a great trip. I hope it was entertaining for you guys to hear about tonight. And I hope that you'll go do it. I hope that if you ever get the chance, bypass Pigeon Forge, bypass Dollywood, bypass Gatlinburg and get into the mountain, and fish your way down it, and just revel in the experience, take in the experience of the beauty of the Great Smoky Mountains. They are gorgeous. The views are stunning, and it's something that I highly recommend everyone take a stab at. Make yourself one of those 12.5 million visitors a year. But that, I believe, is wrapping up my story for the night. And I hope that you guys enjoyed the episode. Hope you enjoyed my recounting of the story. So we're going to wrap it up and, and take it home. Let's see if we can land this plane. Um, thanks for being here tonight, guys. Thanks for coming back. Please rate and review. Please tell your friends. Please subscribe. That's going to help us more than anything ever could. Let people know that you're enjoying the show. If you are, it's the best support you could ever give us. That's how we move up in rankings. That's how we get noticed and how we get in front of more eyeballs and more earballs. And that's what we really need more than anything. 
Um, please submit your story. I want to tell your story, guys. We got to get into telling those stories. We're working our way towards it. And I need your stories. Mywaywardstory at gmail.com. If you want to join any of our private groups on Facebook or Reddit, if you want to check out my YouTube channel, if you want to see my Instagram or read the blogs that we have over at the website, see my photo galleries, the website is waywardstories.com. Also, you can get access to our Patreon there if you want to support the show monetarily. As I've said before, 20% of anything that comes from patrons will always go to a charity every month. And that's really about all I've got for you guys until next week we'll have to come up with a new story for next week got a couple ideas in mind been kicking them around not sure where we're going to go next week but for now i hope this will tide you over till then you guys be good to each other get out there find something good to do in this world try to make the world a little bit of a better place brighten someone's day man Trail be rocky. The mountaintop awaits. Carry on.